Hello, superhumans. It is great to be back with you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. On this podcast, I have the privilege to have deep conversations with people who each in their own way elevate the human experience. One particular topic I often come across is the profound desire we humans have to lead a meaningful life. My guest today is Rabbi Steve Leader, and much of his life's work centers around this issue. Steve Leader is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. He has been a rabbi for 35 years, during which he has written more than 1,000 eulogies, and he says that death is not only the great teacher, it is the only teacher. The question of how to live a more meaningful life has been a central focus of Rabbi Leader's critically acclaimed books, amongst them the bestsellers More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, and The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift, as well as For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Rabbi Leader is a graduate of Northwestern University, studied at Trinity College, Oxford, and was ordained at Hebrew Union College. He is the winner of numerous awards for his interdenominational and cross-cultural dialogue, and his compassion and wisdom are a source of great healing in our times. Newsweek magazine twice named Steve Leader one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America and he is a leading voice in reconnecting us with the humanity inside ourselves and within others. I'm Ariana Summer, and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically, and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Rabbi Leader, what a profound pleasure to connect with you today. Welcome to the Superhumanized Podcast. Thank you, Ariana. I'm, I'm really honored to be with you, and it is the best name of any podcast I think I've ever been on. So oh, good for you. You are so kind. Oh, that that actually just moves me a lot right now. Thank you so much. <laughs> I firmly, it comes from my firm belief that humanity can rise. I believe in humanity 2.0, that we have the possibility to become stewards of this earth, uh, each other's keepers. And even though we may have to walk through, move through a lot of turmoil to get there, I believe we can. So that's also where the name of the podcast comes from, Superhumanize. And I just feel so profoundly honored and grateful that I get to connect with people such as you who help humanity level up by their mission, by their teachings, by their being. So again, thank you for being here. It's an honor. And tying into that, because there, yes, we can superhumanize. 
we also have a lot of obstacles we're facing. And I have heard you say, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty handed. I love that. Can you unpack that for us a little bit, Rabbi Leader, please? Sure. I have found in my 35 years of being inside the lives of so many people and my own, that none of what we learn from extreme pain and suffering is worth the extreme pain and suffering, but neither must we allow it to become worthless because then it was for naught. Then we have learned nothing. If we approach it in an open way, and we can talk about what those ways are, pain and loss are ultimately the great teachers. In fact, I think the only teachers because they are so disruptive. And it is only the disruption, the rupture that elevates us to a new plateau. If you ask most people what their greatest success or accomplishment might be, the thing of which they are most proud, you will most often find that is rooted in some profound and deep suffering that preceded it. And that I think is the best we can do is if we have to walk through hell, not to come out empty handed, use it to ennoble our lives. Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. Hmm. I think that is an enormously profound way to look at the purpose of our lives. Can we be worthy of our suffering? And can we be worthy of the suffering that surrounds us? Now that, of course, that's beautiful and moving. And in Dostoevsky's case, of course, his suffering has touched and transformed in a good way so many people via his calling, the work he put forth into this world. And I believe whether we touch one person or millions of people, the scale in each case, touching one soul even, is vast. If you look at everything it connects with, yes. how can we actually make our suffering worthwhile? How can we encounter it more openly? There are ways to encounter it more openly, as you mentioned before. One of them is not to suffer alone. The sages of the Talmud say, the prisoner cannot free himself. Mm. Again, a very powerful idea. We need to reach out. And very often we will discover when we reach out that there is someone waiting who will hold our hand and help lift us from our suffering. And this becomes the, the more beautiful path that we are set upon only because we were brought so low. Tell you something. I know that this is not a religious podcast, but to some, to some degree, this is my frame. the The rabbis ask a very interesting question about a verse in the Bible, which says God puts His words upon our hearts, and they ask why upon our hearts and not in our hearts. Surely, if God has the power to place words upon our hearts, God can certainly place them within our hearts. And the answer they give is, God places words upon our hearts. And it isn't until our hearts are broken that the words can enter. Mm. <laughs> so in a sense, we are actually more whole when broken. Mm, and this is not in any way to glorify suffering or mm -hmm. to diminish 
the pain of suffering. Quite the contrary. Suffering is suffering and pain is pain. And I wish none of it for any of us ever. But to be human is to suffer. Now what? And the now what is we reach out. We look for a way to ennoble our suffering with cause and purpose and meaning. We ideally allow it to to increase the humility with which we approach the world, the empathy with which we approach others, and the quality of our relationships. And that is, in many ways, that's what I meant. Uh, My third book was called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. And that's what I really was getting at, is that the Ideally, the end result, the distillate of pain and suffering and loss and disruption is greater empathy for others. And and that is everything. And that, I believe, is what it means to be a spiritual human being, not a religious human being necessarily, but a spiritual human being. The first law of biology is preservation of the self. But the first law of the spirit is compassion, compassion for the other, the recognition that the other and we are one. The the nine plagues, the 10 plagues of the Passover story, the Jewish liberation myth is, the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And again, the sages ask, just what was the nature of this darkness? How dark was this darkness? Was it just a 24 hour night or was it something else? And one of the answers they give is that it was so dark that no person could get up from his own place, could get, the Hebrew is mitachtav, could not get out from under him or herself. In other words, could not see the humanity in the other. It was so dark that the Israelites and the Egyptians no longer saw the humanity. Mm. They had lost the sense of oneness, the sense of compassion. And it's when we feel and evidence and live that sense of oneness. You are me. I am you. My life is important, and so is everyone else's. It's only when we remove the idea that there's relative value to life that, that we have real oneness and wholeness and transcendent meaning. And I know we're getting a little trippy here, but this is the truth of it. If you cannot reach out to lift another from his or her suffering, who are you? Why are you here? Yes. And I think what you just talked about, and getting trippy is a very good thing on this podcast here, by the way. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) (laughs) I think you are laid your finger on the core of a wound of a dis-ease that our culture is dealing with at large nowadays. And you also say in your book that we're often deaf to the people around us. There seems to be a huge lack of empathy within many of us, partially probably because so many of us feel like we're running on empty. There's so many things we're facing. And partially also because we live in an environment of media or so-called leaders who use the types of language or act in a certain way that is devoid of empathy, that dehumanizes those that don't talk like us, pray like us, eat like us, think like us. Yes, that's right. It is, in a word, the objectification of the other. Yes. That leads to evil. Mm-hmm. Yes, that leads to not seeing the humanity 
in others anymore. And often when that happens, I think we also even lose the connection to the humanity within ourselves. Because when the outer critic, to use a term from psychology, is so twisted and perverted, the inner critic is the counterpart to this. We even lose empathy for ourselves and we get lost in this spiral of loathing and suffering. We, in a sense, objectify ourselves. Yes, this is the root of of evil. Mm-hmm. You, you. How could one harm someone or something for which one has true empathy mm-hmm. and oneness? Mm-hmm. And the opposite is also true. What is the consequence of doing evil to someone who you believe to be merely an object? And this is it. You're right. We have put our finger on it. And it is not a new problem, that is for sure. And it is a demon, it is a genie we will never put back in the bottle, but we can fight it and rise above it. And and it does come down to recognizing the humanity in the other. And in America, someone sent me an article the other day from National Geographic about the origins of the song, America the Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about it. And what is it that makes America beautiful? Yeah. Certainly other countries have more majestic purple mountains. Mm. If you've ever been to Nepal or Bhutan or Chile, there are far more impressive mountain ranges than the Rockies all over the world. Although the song talks about purple mountains majesty, Ukraine has far more vast and beautiful amber waves of grave of grain. Boy, mm. what a, what a Mm-hmm. statement that was my goodness yeah. more amber more impressive amber waves of grain than the plains of the united states what is it what is the differentiator the real differentiator is when we crown our good with brotherhood and sisterhood from sea to shining sea that is america the beautiful unity and somehow we have to find our way back to that and the way Okay, Rabbi How, I, I always revert back to this Buddhist saying that I really love, which is tend the part of the garden you can reach. We, none of us can heal the world. I think it's almost a, a foolish idea, but we all have a part of the garden that we can reach. And when we tend that garden, we're making a difference. When we weed out objectification, when we weed out indifference, when we plant empathy and plant compassion, it does matter. When we raise compassionate children and grandchildren who, who do not think only of the self, and when we are not afraid to point out what is wrong, mm-hmm. it's so amazing to me that we will, we will tell our children that going too close to the pool is dangerous for them. Going, not looking both ways when you cross the street is dangerous. But when it comes to weighing in on the crassness and the objectification and the materialism in our society, somehow we don't teach our kids how dangerous that is. And I don't for the life of me understand it. Yes, I don't either. There's such profound things we could help our children grow, not just grow up, but grow with. And they're just not shared, not in school. By the way, many of us do. Let's not be quite so uh, pessimistic. Yes. I think a lot of us 
are doing our best at making the garden we can reach more beautiful. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I get called all the time by media after some tragedy, Uvalde, any of them. Rabbi, what can you say? What hope is there? And I really think it's important to remember that most people in the world are really good yeah. and they're really kind. And they don't walk into fourth grade classrooms and murder 19 children and two teachers. And they don't spew hatred. And they don't think less of people who are different. The news is not the world. And that's worth remembering. Now, there are these eclipses, of course. The moon can eclipse the sun. And in that moment, it feels as if the moon is more powerful than the sun. And that the moon has the power forever to shut out the light and the warmth of the sun. But that's a perception of the moment. The truth is, the eclipse ends, the moon passes, and the light and the warmth of the sun returns to the earth. And that involves faith, and that involves putting our shoulder to the moon to nudge it out of the way of the light and the warmth. And it involves a real understanding of most of the world, which is filled with beautiful people doing beautiful things. And ordinary people doing beautiful, ordinary things, raising children and throwing darts in a pub and taking a walk and nursing a baby. That's the world. Yes. What you just mentioned can feel oftentimes so overwhelming when we have these eclipses, especially when it gets feels like it gets thrown at us via the media and there's hardly a way to escape unless you completely shut down electronic communication and even communication with people who might otherwise carry these news. You never hear some newscaster get on the news and say, I'm reporting from a city that is at peace. Yes. (laughs) And and hasn't had strife for 50 years. You never hear that. No. And it makes sense within the business model that is news today because our brain likes to latch onto negativity. That's how it's been wired for survival ever since the human species made an appearance in this world. So I get all that. I get also the revenue model. It's sad that it is that way. But we actually are better than that. Yes, we are. I don't mean that theoretically. Mm -hmm. Literally. We are better than what we see on the news. Yes, I believe that too. What a lot of people, I certainly have done that also, when we see through the filter of the news what is happening, or of course, if something monumental happens, even when it's at the other side of the world, for example, Ukraine right now, um, it's very easy to feel tremendously guilty when you when it comes to feeling joy in face yeah. of such a heavy or bad situation. Yeah. And some people even take that to the extreme, or I don't even want to say take because it's not a conscious thing. It grows into such an extreme into them where they're incapable of feeling a sense of happiness anymore. Because Yes, I, I call this spectator's guilt. You feel like a spectator and helpless when watching the suffering of others yeah. close by. By the way, any anyone watching a loved one on their deathbed mm-hmm. has spectator's guilt. And this is not just something remote or on the news or in Ukraine or in India. This is this comes very close to all of our lives at some point. Watching a child suffer in a way in which you cannot rescue them. So we all have to live through times when we have to accept the fact 
that we are human and we can only do so much. Now, that has to be, I believe, counterbalanced by something I've written about, which simply put is a little is a lot. Hmm. A little is a lot. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And when you ask most people, which I do often, about the people they love who have died and what mattered to them, it's never the big things. It's never your father's resume or your mother's PhD or your parents' net worth or your zip code or any of that. What is it? It's the seemingly insignificant thing. Oh, he and I got up early before school every morning and we worked on my, the cage we built for my pet salamander in the garage. She, she always put a note in my lunch to remind me that she loved, it's these seemingly small little things, but these little things are everything. So that when we feel this powerlessness, this spectator's guilt, it's worth remembering that a little is a lot. My father, my father, who was not a well-educated person, but was wickedly street smart, had an incredible bullshit meter, really an amazing person. And a professor of sorts, although he barely graduated high school, a professor of sorts who taught through Yiddish aphorisms, these Yiddishisms, one of which was, and of course he was referring to money because he had a, he raised us with an extraordinary fear of poverty and we were not poor, but we lived like we were poor. And he often would say to us when we were, I'm one of five children, when we were young, he would say, abyssal and abyssal, vertiful schissel. Uh-huh. Right? Now, you're German, so you know. A little and a little fills up the pot, fills up the vessel. A little and a little, abyssal and abyssal, vertiful schissel. And I think this is true, not just of money and saving, and but of the tiniest deeds of human kindness. It, it does matter. Maimonides, the medieval philosopher and physician, he said we should live as if the, the scale of the world's deeds is perfectly balanced between good and evil. And the next deed laid upon that scale will determine the destiny for the entire world. Beautiful. Meaning a deed, the weight of a feather can determine which way things go. It's the butterfly effect. It's the same idea that the flutter of a butterfly's wings in the Amazonian rainforest can affect the weather in North America. We just don't know. So I, again, we're right back to the part of the garden you can reach. Yeah, that is beautiful and hopeful. And I also personally find it to be absolutely true. The smallest thing is the biggest thing. The smallest, tiniest little particle atom, even if we go into the subatomic, has an effect on the entire universe as we know it. And since we can be trippy on this podcast, yes. when you break life down to its subatomic component. I don't even know what they're calling the smallest particle these days. It used to be the Z particle, and now it's something else. When It's so paradoxical. There's this dichotomous tension here that when you break matter down to its tiniest component, you are also at the same time revealing what is most common to all of existence. So the tiny is also the universal. The drop, the drop is the ocean. And if we approach our lives that way, What a difference in purpose and calling and meaning. Indeed. Something 
During my research into your life and your work, I came across you saying that, uh, which kind of ties into this, that you wrote your rabbinical pieces on Albert Einstein yes. and how his unified field theory is very similar to monotheism, that yeah. all is one. Can you... Yes, yeah, so Einstein, Einstein's unified field theory, which he never fully proved, but believed was true and could be proven on just a blackboard and with a piece of chalk, was essentially, and I'm grossly oversimplifying, but essentially that there is a single unifying force or principle behind all of existence, that all is one. And this is a deeply spiritual idea. Mm-hmm. And it is a and it is a very powerful idea because it creates a kind of essentialism about our lives that means we matter. Ultimately, I see religion generally as a battle against fatalism. And I see science ultimately as a battle against fatalism, that we do not necessarily have to be trapped by yesterday's ways. We do not necessarily have to simply be the newest cast in the same drama that repeats itself generation after generation. That's paganism. And that means we don't matter. That whatever we do is predestined and it changes nothing. Our dharma is our dharma. And my faith is the opposite. It is a battle against that kind of fatalism. It is essentially a proclamation that says, you matter. Now, live like it. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. What really has struck me over the last few years, oftentimes it comes up in some polls or in the news, is there's been a great number of people leaving organized religion in recent times. Why do you think that is happening? There are a few different reasons, one of which is generally very uninspiring religious leadership in America. Very, And I taught at the seminary in Los Angeles for 13 years. Far too often when one goes to hear or experience a religious event, opportunity, service, presentation, the person up there presenting has nothing to say. They regurgitate the news. They cut and paste from the internet. They're underwhelming. The real enemy of religion in America is boredom. So this starts at the top. Now, the other thing, and this may not make some people who listen to your podcast happy, but I believe it's true, is that evangelical Christians have monopolized God language and religious language in America. And so when we speak in religious terms, we feel like, we sound like, evangelical Christians, and many of us are not comfortable with that association. Mm-hmm. Yes, I see this in my synagogue all the time. If I got up on the pulpit and I started my sermon with saying, brothers and sisters, let us pray, people would wonder what happened to the rabbi? What Did he convert to Christianity? Did, is he Southern Baptist? Is he evangelical? What the hell happened to the rabbi? Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Jews don't talk like that. Or if I got up and said, God is love, they would think that's the Christians. But this is exactly what they're saying in Hebrew. And they're completely comfortable with it. So I think we have a psycholinguistic enemy too. Because when we use words like God, salvation, love, 
we feel like we sound like people with whom we do not agree. And so we don't talk about it at all. And therefore, the only exposure to God language in America is something most people reject. Yes, because so it's I, extreme. It's extremism that mostly, if you read news headlines, and a lot of times, it's pretty much relegated to the extremists. They wouldn't see it, by the way. They wouldn't see it that way. Oh, yeah, I know. And I'm friends with many of them, but I am not them. Right. And when I speak about religious ideas in English, I sure sound like I am. And this is another issue. It's subtle, but I think it's quite, it's a very powerful force, I think. And I think there's also a general loss, justifiably so, a general loss of faith in institutional life in America. I don't think that, I don't think that politics, government is faring any better than religion. Mm -hmm. The best and brightest are not going into politics. No, not at all. It's mostly second and third tier talent. The best and the brightest are are not going into to become clergy. And there are understandable reasons for that. The current examples are not great. And without modeling, you, you don't raise up another generation. Now, this breaks my heart, by the way. Most synagogues are circling the drain. Our national movements are diminishing. It breaks my heart. But you know what? I can't fix it. You know what I can do? Can I can tend my garden. I can work hard to make Wilshire Boulevard Temple the most vibrant, dynamic, optimistic voice for oneness and humanity and Judaism in the world. Yes, leading by example. By That's your all own. I can do. Because I want to talk also on the other side, what there's obviously religious extremism, which we are very much exposed to nowadays, also via the media, and also what you've alluded to, there's also the extreme or the radical secularism. It, oh, yes. Both of this can have, not can have, has a very negative impact on our culture, on our society, and also our mental health, clearly. And it's a real misnomer that religion is the source of all conflict in the world. That is not true. Agreed. Extremism is the enemy. Yes, I could not agree. For example, what were the three most murderous regimes mm. in the 20th century? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mao in China, Stalin in Russia, and Hitler in Germany. Mm -hmm. All three outlawed religion in their own way. Mm -hmm. They were all secular. So don't tell me that Religion is the root of violence and conflict. It's not true. Fanaticism is the enemy, yeah. not religion. So I have two questions. The first one would be, how can we, when we're actually within a religious community and we see fanaticism, we see radical elements or speech pop up, how can we in a healthy way counter that? By being in a religious community that is not. Leave that church. Leave that synagogue, create one or join one that does reflect the values of your people, mm -hmm. the real values, yeah. and starve them of oxygen in that way. Yes. And starving them of oxygen also means starving them of attention. I so often exactly. feel, yeah, I so often feel you mentioned 
mentioned it before, if we talk about things, of course, we need to report on things that happen. One of the most recent really sad examples of a mass shooter, Uvalde, of course, comes to mind. What has always bothered me is that there is a huge focus on the perpetrator, much more so than I personally feel needs to be versus a focus on the actual problems or also the people that have died, that have been murdered and victimized. And there's also a huge focus on whenever there's something extreme. We give such exposure to extreme elements because it'll generate clicks, it'll generate views. And giving these elements such huge... And it has a cumulative effect on all of us. Yes, it does. Yeah. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. Uh-huh. I, there is something in your life I'd love for you to share with us. About oh, Dylan. <laughs> my, mis, my misspent youth. Yes. <laughs> yeah. When I was 14, I had, I'm the fourth of five children and huh. my parents were done parenting by the time my little brother and I came around. And so I played drums in a rock and roll band and when, and I was smoking pot every day when I was 14 at school. And then my bandmates and I decided that it would be a good idea to go to Target and steal some albums. And so we still, we were, we went there to steal a bunch of Bob Dylan albums and we got caught of course, cause we approached it like complete idiots, like 14 year olds. And I, my parents were on vacation in Florida and I had to call them and tell them I got a rest. My older sister, Marilyn had to bail me out. It was a whole thing. And my parents woke up and said, oh my goodness, Steve might be on the wrong path and we should engage. And then they made the choice to change my peer group and they sent me to this progressive Jewish camp in Wisconsin, which changed my life. And I've never looked back since. But anyway, I love Bob Dylan and the point I bring that up is that his song, I, there's so many great songs, but his song, Everything is Broken. Mm-hmm. There's a line in there, take a deep breath, feels like you're choking everything is broken. And I think that is the cumulative effect of all of this tiny speck of bad news, which is given 99% of the oxygen on in, in the media. And by the way, you and I, we already talked about it. We understand the economics. If it bleeds, it leads. It sells commercials. It sells ads. We get, We understand that. But in a way, here we are back again at this idea that in a way it is its own form of objectification. These bad incidents, these threats, they're used to generate profits. And and by the way, I like money as much as the next guy. I'm not a monk, but there. I, if I were king of the world, which I would not want to be, I would say, okay, media, for every story you put on about despicable human behavior and violence, you have to put five on Let's change the mix. Let's change the ratio to reflect the world as it really is. That will never happen. So we have to do it ourselves. Yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you that. Had to make me talk about the shoplifting story, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it's such a beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful example of how each and every one of our paths we can have had twists and turns and it's not about being quote perfect it's about what we what comes out of and what we make out of certain experiences and yeah. i personally have always found that the times in my life where i have suffered and 
been helped out of it or found myself a way to rise above it or the times in my life where I have been less than perfect, where I've done things that I was not and am not in essence about the things proud of, but I've learned from them and they give me a greater understanding and empathy for others. And they sometimes help me stop in my thought tracks when I'm about to make a judgment about another human being. It's oftentimes these moments that are like, ah, yes. hang on, wait, you yes. have been in their shoes. You know, Ariana, Ariana, that is exactly what I try to do when people come to see me Mm -hmm. sit on what I call my couch of tears in my office and talk to me about some terrible moral failure or deep regret. Before I open my mouth, I ask myself, where is that same flaw in me? And then I engage. I do this also in the hallway of a hospital before I walk into a hospital room, particularly of an elderly person. When I walk in, and I look at them, I try, I, I imagine them not as they are, but as they were at 30. Here she is grimacing and suffering. But imagine her at her wedding when she was 28 years old with her auburn hair twirling and dancing and dark and lithe and beautiful. That's the person I'm talking to in the bed. We tend to objectify and diminish. And, and yes, the more we can pause there's a saying they teach in the in medical school and in the military uh, which is don't just do something stand there we generally are taught the opposite don't just stand there do something but there's also great value in don't just do something stand there pause reflect find this person's story and life and fault and triumph in your life and then respond with empathy. And this changes everything for both parties, by the way. And yeah, I think we can get there. In, in, my, in the, my new book that just came out, which is called For You When I Am Gone, my first question in the book that I examine and dig into is regret. The first chapter is about regret. Because what I have found is that it's the other side of the point you were making about the things you've done that you regret, you reflect on it, it improves your life. What I found in thinking deeply about regret and in my experience with people is that the thing that most people regret most is not something they did. It's something they didn't do. The time they didn't show up, the words they didn't speak, the action they didn't take. That's what people regret most because we find a way generally, which you just talked about, to turn regret about the things we did into something, we find a way to forgive or be forgiven and we find a way to heal, time helps, helping others helps, all of that. But how do you repair what you didn't do? I often, so what I say to people when we get to this issue, I often say to people who come to me to talk about a regret related to something they didn't do. The first thing I say to them is, well, I have given up all hope of a better past. Very simple. Mm. And it's a very blunt, powerful triage kind of tool that that immediately snaps people out of it and it to a point where we can now talk about the fact that regret is not about the past. It's about a different future. You mm. cannot have a different past, but you can have a different future. Now what? Yeah. There, there are two types of mistakes or sins. There are mistakes of commission, the things we do, but there are also 
the mistakes of omission, all the things we didn't do, the words, all of this. But the point of both is that none of us can have a better past, but all of us can have a more beautiful future. All of us. And what's really important in order to have a better future, you also mention you have the advice. You have been a rabbi for 35 years. Yes. Yeah. And it's you, crazy because I'm 28 years old, but. Yes, that's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Inside. Yes. Yeah. I can tell. There's old wisdom combined with a very young mind. And that's. Yeah. With a 14 year old who stole Bob Dylan out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a beautiful thing. I think that's an extraordinary mixture. And that's why so many people, why you are able to plant so many beautiful seeds in your garden. I think throughout all these years that you've been a rabbi, I think I've read, you've written more than a thousand eulogies oh, and the top yes. of death is one that you dive yeah. profoundly into in quite a few of your books, also the recent one. And you've been around a lot of grieving families. You just mentioned it, that most people regret not what they do, but what they didn't do. And I think partly that is also the things we don't do is because such a large percentage, you mentioned, I think it's 94 and 98% people are always waiting for something, yeah. right? Yes, this is a very interesting insight. Mm -hmm. There's a psychologist, and this was many years ago, named William Marston. Mm -hmm. And he did a study, he asked 3,000 people what they were living for. And 94% of them were living for something in the future. They were living, waiting, let's say, to pay off the mortgage, waiting for the kids to go to college, waiting to retire. 94% of us waiting while life is actually happening right now. It's... I say this is like standing knee deep in a river and dying of thirst. Life is right here. And most of us are waiting. Yes. And that's, uh, I have found myself doing that many times. I've become much more aware of it. And I think that mindfulness is actually also the first step. What can it is. And look at the pent up demand that the lockdown of COVID created in us. I think many of us started to really figure it out that, what have I been waiting for? Right. Yes. So true. People changing careers, people yeah. changing countries where they live in as far as they could, people completely changing their mindsets, the and way going on the vacation and yeah. getting rid of crap they don't need or want and yeah. all of it. And it's all part of a great reevaluation. And once again, rooted in loss and death and pain, because that is what shakes us by our shoulders and says, wake up, don't wait, don't wait. And because every brush with death is actually a brush with life, our life. I think that's what Dostoevsky was trying to get at when he said he, his hope was that he could be worthy of his suffering, that he learned something from his suffering that would ennoble his life and his calling. And because otherwise, we, we miss the greatest opportunity we have which is to lead a meaningful life, not an easy life. No one leads an easy life. I see the insides of, there are 10,000 people belong to my synagogue. I see the insides of many lives. None of them are easy, not one. It's like that 
that old story about a village and everyone packs their troubles in a suitcase and puts all the suitcases in the town square. And then everyone has a week to go through everyone else's suitcase and choose which one they want to take home with them. You know, which one everyone takes home with them, their own. So an easy life is not the goal. A pain-free life is not the goal. Being a good person and expecting to avoid pain is like being a vegetarian and expecting the bull not to charge you. It is not how it works. But when you lead a life of humility and empathy and gratitude and suffering, you can have a meaningful life. And that's the richest kind of life there is. Yes. And also a life in which you say, you just, that was beautiful. You said every brush of death is also brush with <laughs> life. And you say that death is not only the great teacher, it's the only teacher. It is the only teacher. Yes. And to make, to help make death meaningful as well, also life. I really love the, you already mentioned one of the 12 questions that you share with us, teach us in your latest book, For You When I'm Gone. These 12 questions, they are basically, they help us reevaluate our life and also help us to basically set up our legacy. Can you tell us how you came up with these 12 questions? And yes. I was asked the same question by my editor. She said, Steve, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? They just, they just unfold a person's story, a person's truth. And I jokingly, half jokingly said to her, 35 years and 15 minutes. Because these are the questions I have been asking families for 35 years when I gather with them after their loved one has died. And I'm trying to get to the truth of their loved one's life, not the facts. I used to teach at the seminary a course called homiletics, which is a fancy word for how to write a sermon, eulogy, wedding address. And when we got to the eulogy part, the first thing I would write on the board is an obituary tells you the facts. A eulogy tells you the truth, right? The fact that I was born in 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota and went to Aquila Elementary School doesn't tell you much about me at all, other than my age. But when I say to you, As a little boy, when I wanted to escape the stress of my parents' bitter marriage, I would go out on the canoe to be alone on the creek that ran behind our house. And to this very day, I seek solitude in nature. Now, the truth. And so these questions were developed over 35 years of of practice, really, and experimentation. And how do I get a family to, to share the truth of their loved one's life? And of course, when we do this for ourselves, when we're living, which is the point of the book, we're not only leaving our story, our legacy for our loved ones, but we're also giving ourselves a kind of MRI of our internal life that we can hold up to the light and ask ourselves, okay, this is what I say, I believe. This is what I say my truth is, but am I actually living that way? Or is it mostly pretend? Is my life mostly pretend? And if it is, what am I going to do about that? And so these are the ways, these questions are meant not only to leave a beautiful legacy for our loved ones, but also to reevaluate our own lives. And the idea is so important because I also know, as someone who's around so much death, that for most people in this country, 
the last word they ever receive from their loved one who dies is a last will and testament in an estate plan that's mostly boilerplate written by someone who didn't even know them. And it's all about who gets what and how much and when. And is that really how we want our story to end? Is that really what we want to leave the people we love? That's like handing them a picture of food. Yeah. It's not going to sustain and nourish and comfort them. What is our answers to these 12 questions? Because those are our blessings and our truths and our regrets and our triumphs and our hopes and our dreams for them. That's being a good ancestor. And you put a great emphasis on being a good ancestor. And these 12 questions actually also form part of what you would call the ethical will, right? Yes, it's called an ethical will, which now we understand what it is in contradistinction to the last will and testament. Mm -hmm. It's not about your stuff. It's about your truth. Beautiful. Rabbi Leader, this there is a question I like to ask every guest I have on the podcast, and that's about the practices that have most elevated their life mentally, spiritually, and or physically. Would you be willing to share them with us? Yes. Do I get one? You want me to distill it down to one? Oh, yeah. Your preference, your choice. One is gardening. We've talked a lot metaphorically about gardening, but I find real peace and solitude the patience of gardening, the battle against disease and infection, the array of color and beauty. So gardening is a very important spiritual and physical practice for me. And another is, uh, I, I'm an extraordinary wife. Extraordinary. <laughs> I really do. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Wonderful. And I really make a practice out of hugging her and kissing her and holding her and telling her again and again how much I love her. Because one of the things that loss teaches us, mm. one of the things that I think the vulnerability that COVID brought to all of us is that no matter how many times we say, I love you, and no matter how many times we hold and are held by the people we love, it's never enough. It's never enough. That is the stuff of life itself. So that's my practice. That is so beautiful. Thank you, Rabbi Leighton. For people who want to learn more about you, what can they do for Instagram, at Steve underscore leader. And I actually answer all of the messages myself. I think it's important. Otherwise, it's more kabuki. SteveLeader.com. Wilshire Boulevard Temple, you can find me there. Uh, all the books are on Amazon. Many are at your local bookstore. If they're not, shame on them. And I'm easy to reach. I'm easy to find. And I don't mind being found. Fantastic. Thank you so much for imparting your wisdom and ways how we can find ourselves, find back to ourselves with us today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for being a guest of the Superhumanized Podcast. Well, the pleasure was mine really mean that. Thank you, Ariana. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.